Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Zach Lucas, McCarthy Denning. Uh, just bringing us in a bit early on this uh, webinar, dealing with India and Indonesia, part of the uh, Governors to Succession series that we've been running over the last week or so. So for uh, today's session, obviously we're doing India and Indonesia, but I just wanted to remind everyone of the, uh, of the program generally. So next week at the same time, we'll be doing Philippines and Japan, and then take a break for a week and then come back with a double header with uh, Malaysia and Thailand. And then finally, uh, winding up the entire series with the special session on the single family office. And in that, we are looking at bringing in a comparison between the an ordinary use of a Singapore PT company and uh, comparing it with a VCC and seeing whether or not there are any uh, particular advantages on using either in terms of structuring uh, for business families, as well as generally for wealthy ultra-high network families that are looking at establishing uh, single family offices in Singapore. As I said, next week will be Philippines and Japan, and I've put a link on the, uh, the chat today uh, where you can go to that if you haven't already registered and then uh, use that for uh, perhaps a registration. So coming back to today's session, we'll be joined um, by Spencer Stewart, Deputy Director of Monetary Authority of Singapore, Tria Rao, partner AZB Partners in India, and Freddy Kriani, partner ABNR in uh, Jakarta, Indonesia. And, uh, I'm very grateful for these practitioners for spending time on these uh, webinars. i just say at the beginning as normal admonition that uh, the purpose of these webinars is not for technical legal advice. This is just general views on uh, assumed facts and therefore uh, should not be relied upon as if it were technical legal advice being given for today's agenda. Business family demographics will be the first that we deal with and then we'll move on to succession planning. And in here, we're looking principally at what the business families do in India and Indonesia when it comes to their business succession planning. We'll look at governance planning as a separate subtopic of this. And then we'll go on to look at the international structuring or whether or not it's uh, possible for an international structure to be used uh, as part of the succession planning domestically for Indian and Indonesian families. We'll then look at the uh, emergence of domestic family offices in each market and see whether or not this is actually happening. And if it is, how is it manifesting? And we'll ask uh, our panelists to help us with understanding what the dynamics look like within the uh, domestic scene. And then we'll end with the international family office. And here we're looking principally at the Singapore single family office. But we're looking at it in the context of uh, so will take us through obviously the main characteristics of this and its success story but then we'll transition to look at how can the Singapore single-family office slot in the, uh, the sort of ecosystem for each of you know, India and Indonesia and what are the challenges. So that's today's program. Um, should be on time in terms of an hour and then we'll have some time at the end for some uh, questions and answers and as usual the recording as well as the slide will be made available after the, the session is complete. So looking at the family demographics, and the, the questions I'll ask here of the panelists is, which generation is typically in control for their relevant jurisdiction? The average number of family members that will succeed to the business, and how soon do we anticipate succession will occur? Within three years, five years, 10 years, how, how urgent is this? So I'd ask Shriya to, um, to open it up with, which generation 
generation is typically in control with respect to the, uh, the sort of Indian business families? Is it first generation, second, third? Where, where are we at the moment in India? Sure. Thanks, Zach. Uh, so I think there's a wide uh, variance in India, to be honest, because it is a large country and it's also gone through economic liberalization only about uh, 20, 30 years ago. So uh, I, what I would like to start with is the oldest businesses that you would typically see will generally be in the range of 60 to 70 years. Uh, and the reason for this is that uh, uh, prior to 1947, the British were ruling India and there used to be restrictions on ownership of businesses and expropriatory taxation, for example. So most of the oldest businesses in India are run by the Parsi community uh, who maintained more neutral relationships with the British. And examples would be uh, the Tata Group, which was founded in 1868, and uh, the Vadia Group, which was founded in 1879. Uh, Paddy & Co is another very, very old business that was founded by a Welshman in the late 1800s. Uh, and is now under Indian ownership. But with these few exceptions, most Indian businesses that you will see today, which are fairly big, uh, would have been set up uh, post-independence. Uh, and several would have also been set up post the 90s. So most of the technology businesses that you hear about are fairly, fairly young and therefore haven't had the chance to move to the next generation yet. So two generations in most cases, and some of the larger ones will even be one generation. Right. And the average number of family members that will succeed to the business, how, how, how big is the problem? Because obviously the more members that succeed, the more complex it is to coordinate everyone. I think it would again depend on the nature of the business. So for the more old school businesses, you are probably looking at, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 members in the next generation uh, at the most. Uh, you would definitely not be looking at numbers in excess of that. But it is also common to have businesses which have far fewer stakeholders, which would depend on the size of the families involved. Right, right. And then in terms of, of the succession process, I, I've got listed there um, three, five, ten years. What, what do we see as, as the time frame within which we will uh, principally hand off to the next generation? How urgent is this become? So several of these businesses which are in the second generation have uh, uh, have patriarchs or people running the business who are in their 60s and 70s. So I would say that the transition to the to the third generation would happen within the next 10 years or so. Next 10 years, right. And, and Freddie, from your perspective, which generation is typically in control of, of Indonesian family businesses? Are we at second generation yet or are we still at the founder generation? Okay, thank you, Zach. Yes, I think in Indonesia, currently, mostly uh, second generation in, in control. The first generation already maybe uh, very old, uh, 90 or above if they're still alive. But uh, now in, in control is the second generation, which is uh, maybe they, they, they were born is uh, like uh, 1945 or 1950. Right. So basically that's uh, the situation. Right. And the average number of family members that are likely to succeed, how many people do you think on average are going to be in the next generation that, that enter the business? Uh, maybe the average number is like four to six, depend on, of course, uh, depend on uh, which family and uh, the industry. Uh, but I think four to six, uh, quite a fair range uh, to be mentioned.
for, for, and, and the time frame within which we anticipate that the, the families will actually go through the succession process. I realize that it's, you know, sort of the second generations, but how are they, you know, so when, when do we think that this great transfer is going to happen? Yeah, maybe uh, to mention about time frame, uh, maybe uh, a bit hard because uh, indeed the uh, the succession, uh, the the gradual succession may may already happen. But if we can if we can uh, talk about the time frame, I could say that maybe the uh, ten years is the ultimate uh, timeline, uh, meaning that uh, maybe after the ten years, the the second generation will fade away from the control. Right, right, okay. And in terms of the succession planning, um, these are the principal questions I'd, I'd run through. Do families typically transfer the business on death or during lifetime? Uh, do families typically structure succession by use of a trust or other sort of arrangement to effectively delay the transfer? Or are there any community property or forced air callback concerns in the market? And again, Sri, I'll ask you to to run through. Do any do the families typically transfer businesses on death or during the lifetime? What do we typically see? So, Zach, I think it would be helpful to start off with uh, with a broad framework here, which is that succession law in India is community specific and religion specific. So, the choices that families adopt will depend quite significantly on which community or religion they belong to. So, for example, most communities in India do not have forced airship principles or a system of community property, but Muslims in India who are governed by Sharia law do. And so there will be a preference amongst Muslims in India to execute lifetime transfers, either by way of gifts or by settling a trust, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and similarly, with Hindus, there is a concept called the Hindu undivided family, which is a system of community ownership that operates at the family level instead of as, uh, at the couple level. And historically, what used to happen is that uh, most people would never write wills because the property was jointly held within the system of the Hindu undivided family, and it would simply pass to the next generation in that manner. Uh, having said this, in the last five to 10 years or so, one significant development is that there is talk of an estate tax or an inheritance tax being introduced in India. Mm. We don't have one at this point in time, mm. but uh, several families have started planning and putting in place lifetime bequests or trusts in anticipation of an estate tax coming in. Um, in terms of numbers, this will not be significant but it's, uh, it is an idea that is getting traction uh, as the years pass. Uh, and there is fully the expectation that an estate tax will come in at some point in the future, which is compelling people to look at lifetime transfers more seriously. Uh, yeah. And there, of course, trusts would become uh, very critical as yeah. well. And in terms of trusts in, in India, um, have you modernized your, your trustee act as many of the Commonwealth countries have done, or do you feel that the, the current trust provisions are sufficient to handle something like a, a business being put into trust? Uh, we still rely on the trust legislation that the British put in place in the late 1800s. Uh, having said this, trusts per se tend to be quite flexible uh, as vehicles. So even if the legislation is really lacking, you end up working in a lot of these provisions into your trustee. 
Uh, and so it isn't uncommon in the Indian context to see protectorship structures, private trust companies, and so on. Uh, having said that, I do think there is a lot of scope for a newer legislation to bring in clarity on critical issues. So, for example, we don't have legislation today that deals with settler reserve powers. Uh, and Indian promoters love retaining control over their trust structures. So it's quite common to see provisions where they retain extensive powers. Uh, and we don't know how those will be treated by an Indian court. Uh, similarly, when trusts hold family businesses, you may sometimes see anti-Bartlett provisions being included, uh, and we don't know how those would be treated by an Indian court. Uh, we are yet to see a case on the validity of protectorship structures or private trust companies. Um, and although there have been cases which have referred to them in passing, we don't have any, any jurisprudence on their validity so far. So I think all of these are issues that as institutional trustee structures become more common and as trusts start being used more actively in the planning process, we will see some clarity on in, in the years going forward, but we don't have it at this point in time. Right. And in terms of the domestic India market, is there a um, the establishment of a professional trustee class? So do you have uh, sort of licensed trust companies or the sort of professional trust companies being involved in this? Or is it still trusteeships in a personal capacity? How, how is it generally evolving? It's a mix of both. Uh, you don't require a license to be a trustee company in India, but you do have uh, the concept of institutional trustees picking up traction, particularly over the last five or 10 years or so. Uh, there again, I think uh, it's an evolving process and uh, their levels of sophistication are constantly improving as well. Uh, but this is again a point on which we will look to other countries to see uh, examples of the sort of best practices that we should adopt and the sorts of issues that we should watch out for. Right. And you mentioned earlier in terms of the um, undivided property. So presumably um, there, there isn't going to be much uh, sort of use of trust structures if they want to do the transfer through this undivided property route. Is, is that right? Or would that give rise to a clawback claim if they try to do it outside of the uh, sort of undivided um, re regime? So there are two questions there. One is whether trusts still have utility considering that Hindus already have this undivided uh, property construct. And the second is uh, if they do decide to set up trusts, whether there's a potential clawback. Yeah. Uh, so on the first question, I think there is absolutely utility. And the reason for that is that uh, the Hindu undivided family construct is driven by customary law. And it may not give you the flexibility that you're looking for in terms of uh, how the property is managed, uh, how milestone distributions are made, uh, you know, how you limit the power of certain people to participate in the property or limit exits, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, until 2005, daughters were not considered co-parsoners in, in this Hindu undivided family. And that was modified by a Supreme Court ruling and subsequent legislation. So prior to that, if you wanted to give your daughters an equal share in this property, you would have to set up something similar to a trust. Uh, so you can think of the Hindu undivided family as a sort of discretionary trust where the karta, who is the manager, has very broad discretionary powers, but it will not give you the kind of flexibility that a private trust could potentially. Mm -hmm. uh, on your second question on clawbacks, mm -hmm. you're right. 
that if it's considered ancestral property, there will be limitations on your ability to put that property into trust. Uh, and the way families typically do it is um, after the property is partitioned, uh, it would then be construed as individual property in the hands of the person who receives it after partition. And then, of course, they do have the flexibility to put it into a trust structure. Right, right. I mean, and so, but there's no special regime for, I presumably, um, it, it's going to be company shares that are being transferred, yeah. right? So there's no special regime for a, a business family company. It's just seen as any other type of property. Absolutely. It's like any other kind of property. Right, got it. Okay. Okay, so Freddie, just from your perspective in terms of the, the uh, sort of Indonesian uh, families, uh, typically transfer the business on death or during lifetime. And what arrangements can we use in Indonesia? Obviously, domestic trusts are not available uh, under your, your laws, but are there any other arrangements that the families try to use to sort of control and delay the absolute transfer of the business across? And then community property uh, and forced their claims, particularly the surviving spouse, um, does she have rights to the, the business, to participate in the ownership of the business? So these are just the general sort of points on this from an Indonesian perspective. Okay, thank you. So I think uh, the, to, to answer the point or bullet point number one, typically uh, family transfer during the lifetime uh, because they, they don't want to uh, have an unexpected or, or uh, unorganized uh, distribution. So the, the second generation normally they already, they already transfer not only the business but also the, the knowledge uh, teach the, the third generation how to run the business, uh, uh, tips and tricks, and, and how to <clears throat> manage the, the business in short. So how they uh, they want to uh, prepare uh, properly. So during the lifetime, of course, uh, that's a uh, uh, typically family transfer the business. Right. Bullet point number one. Yes. And so there's, because they've, they transfer it, absolutely, do they, give a small amount of shares and then introduce the third generation in a sort of like an internship in the business and then later then transfer more shares as they're more happy that the the, the next generation are going to work together correctly yes you are correct that uh, they normally the the way to to make it uh, uh, the candidate of the certain let's say the certain business unit let's say they have like four a, B, C, and D, the, the, the third generation. So let's say A is dedicated for the let's say line of business or unit business number one. So yes, uh, A will, will have a, a bit shares in, in the business unit number one, but the second generation still control mostly. And uh, uh, gradual, the gradual transfer of knowledge and so on. Uh, and then the, the third generation become, let's say like uh, one of the director uh, the, the second generation sit in the chairman so can can still uh, watch <coughs> the operation yeah. uh, and then uh, normally they will also have like a, cro a cross holding uh, meaning that uh, although the children number one uh, control the business unit a but children two three and four may have a bit uh, shares in the number one mm. so and then number uh, for uh, the number two, three, and four will uh, have the same structure. Will have the same cross holding. So 
they still want to create the bond among the family members. So if they have, a, let's say, like a, a shareholders meeting or family meeting, they 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 still have a, 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 the the same feeling, the same uh, the, the sharing that uh, <coughs> uh, strategy uh, because normally uh, the business A B C D for the children one to four will will still have an intercompany transaction, intercompany <coughs> support. So uh, they want to have uh, the the bond uh, stronger and stronger. Right. And how long do they they do this sort of um, sort of shadowing? How typically long is it? Ten years that they they introduce them in, or is it five years? Or how long is the in internship basically? I think the internship uh, normally would be around uh, eight to ten years. Really? Right. Right. Okay. And how do we deal with the situation where if they gift the uh, the shares to a particular um, next generation, if they infringe any community property or any forced air rights for the surviving spouse, how do we how do we deal with that situation uh, in practice? Yeah, because we don't have the trust, as you mentioned earlier. So understand that uh, the potential, the potential distribution ratio may bridge the uh, force uh, here or community property barrier. Yeah. Uh, uh, but normally, uh, people or the, the third generation uh, will, will, will discuss amicably or they will uh, have a cash settlement. Right. The, the one who already appointed as a controller for business A, for instance, still continue. But right. because maybe A is uh, has to has a very big value compared to B, C, D, so maybe uh, A will compensate others by uh, giving up the cash. So they, they come to some agreement beforehand before there's a dispute later on down the road. Is that basically yes. right? Yes. That's uh, the amicable discussion between uh, or among the members. Right, right, okay. In terms of the governance planning itself, do families spend time creating specific governance frameworks to help the next generation work together? Do families take into account best practice corporate governance codes? And these are typically expressed in the corporate governance codes in the, uh, the relevant sort of country stock exchanges. Are governance controls typically contained in a shareholders agreement, corporate constitution, or where relevant a trust? And these are the three the three main points on governance. So um, again, I'd ask you to, to, to kick us off. Do families spend time creating specific frameworks for the next generation to actually work together? Uh, it's happening slowly but surely. Uh, there are some families which have put in place fairly detailed governance structures either in terms of a family charter or a family board or council. Uh, but it isn't, uh, it isn't something that you see across the board. Uh, I think the levels of sophistication are improving uh, and you'll likely see more of it over the coming years. But as of today, there are some noteworthy examples of families who've done this. Right. And in terms of where, they, where the families have done this, do they typically look to what the corporate go, um, sort of corporate codes of conduct or the corporate governance codes are saying. So I know that India has quite an advanced corporate governance code for its stock exchange. Do the families look at that as a, a potential source of how best to structure their, their 
companies for transparency, for managing conflicts of interest and for control within the generation. Have you seen that, that sort of referencing to the corporate governance codes as a, as a, a sort of principled approach for the families to, to, to lead them on this uh, sort of journey? Uh, so typically, Zach, corporate governance codes are referred to if the family anticipates a future exit or if they plan to get an external institutional investor in at some point, for instance. Uh, but what you need to keep in mind is that the vast majority of Indian businesses continue to be family owned and foresee themselves as being family owned in the long term. So when these kinds of succession exercises uh, are put in place or governance frameworks are put in place, it is done primarily from a succession standpoint rather than a governance standpoint. Uh, so they will, for instance, deal with issues of how somebody exits, how you re resolve disputes within the family, how people share an economic interest, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, so how to professionalize and how to bring in good governance practices may be something that they deal with uh, in an ancillary manner, but in most situations, it wouldn't really form the focus of the planning exercise. Right. So presumably they're not uh, entering into complex shareholder arrangements or amending their constitutions, their corporate constitutions, if they're dealing with this as a family more than as a operational legal matter. Is that, is that correct? Uh, not necessarily, because the way in which families plan for succession is vastly different. Some of them do prefer to have shareholders agreements to document the intra-family understanding because they want something enforceable between two family branches which hold shares, for instance. Uh, other families may well prefer a softer document like a family constitution rather than doing a shareholders agreement. Uh, but it's broadly fairly variable and it would depend on what the family wants to accomplish. But the short point is that this exercise will typically be driven by uh, considerations of intergenerational wealth transfer and how to preserve the value in the business rather than the question of how to bring in governance best practices into the business. Right, right. So they, they haven't got to the point where this is a, a central theme in the planning. It's more about how to transition ownership across generations. That's correct. With right. one exception uh, that I should highlight, which is that we've had an insolvency and bankruptcy code put in place a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. uh, which is a creditor favorable legislation, which has compelled a lot of families to separate their personal and business assets. Uh, so historically, what used to happen is that, uh, as with many family businesses, families would put in everything they made into the business, uh, and often personal expenses would be defrayed from the business as well. Uh, but now, because of this creditor-favorable legislation, families have started thinking consciously about setting aside their nest egg and their personal wealth, um, which is uh, which is a good governance practice that has become common in the recent past and which has also led to the growth of uh, interest in family offices in India. Right, right. Okay, and in, in terms of study, so looking at a, a typical Indonesian family when they're arranging how the next generation will work together, um, when they look at things like who will be directors, um, how will they, you know, so how will they all agree the director's salaries, how will they share information about the business going forward? You know, the, the basic governance mechanisms that you would, you would expect to see where a new team is taking over the business. Um, how do they typically 
uh, do that? Do they do that in shareholder agreements or corporate constitutions, or how do they tend to express that, if at all? Okay, thank you. So basically, the shareholders agreement is quite common, although not not very complicated. If this is a, a family business, uh, in the shareholders agreement, we will uh, we'll have a the, the typical provision in the shareholders agreement on uh, on uh, like uh, you mentioned uh, the compensation, yeah. the <clears throat> the seat of directors and so on and so forth. Uh, although this is a not not uh, sophisticated like a joint venture for foreign local right. JV company. Uh, that's for the number one for the best practice corporate governance. Generally, yes, uh, they have a, a quite a, a corporate good corporate governance code uh, among the family. Although uh, maybe. Uh, that's a general understanding, but uh, although some exception in, in certain points. Right. And then on the our government control typically contained in shareholders agreement, corporate constitution or trust. Uh, I think yes, uh, generally in, in the shareholders agreement, uh, they, they mention the, the way who control the operation uh, to make it uh, uh, we have the leader for this particular business at least so uh, to make it uh, if you have more than one control more than one leader that uh, make it uh, coordination uh, more difficult so yes uh, the answer is yes for this uh, bullet point number three right and just one thing for, for both of you in terms of um, the the minority shareholder protections i think Shreya, from your perspective how robust is the Indian Corporates Code in protecting minority shareholders uh, broadly? Is, is it very protective or is it very, very um, um, loose in terms of its protective measures? Fira, are you still with us? Sorry, I missed that. Could you just repeat that, Zach? Yeah, I was just talking about the, um, just broadly, what in terms of the corporate law in India, is it very protective of minority shareholder rights or is it pretty liberal in terms of allowing the majority to do pretty much what they want? So our minority shareholder legislation again has, uh, it derives from the original British legislation with some departures. So yes, minority shareholders do have rights. Uh, although in practice, uh, what happens is that with family businesses, they do hold majority control and uh, it isn't, we don't see a lot of in, uh, instances of oppression and mis mismanagement being alleged, but they do have rights under law. Right, right. In terms of Indonesian law, are minority shareholders protected? I'm thinking about this situation where you have, let's say, uh, five members in the third generation and the, 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 you've got, let's say, four of those members start to pick on or abuse the, the, the fifth member's rights under the, uh, the sort of constitution and corporate laws. Is there much protection for that minority shareholder? I think if, if we rely on minority protection on the uh, articles of association of the company, yeah. the company law, oh, I think that the protection is uh, uh, not not really much. Right. Although there are quite important protections there. Yeah. 
but not really much. Uh, so to beef up the minority protection, uh, normally people will enter into the serious agreement uh, to give certain uh, rights like like specific matters, research matters, uh, certain seats, uh, exit strategy, and so on and so forth. So that's the situation, I believe. Okay. Okay. In terms of family constitutions, um, are family charters and constitutions actually popular with the families in your in your respective jurisdictions? Uh, do they have any legal implications? And um, who typically prepares family constitutions if they are used in your jurisdiction? Is it lawyers, accountants, finance professionals, or business school academics? So, Tria, if you could you could take us through that. Sure. So they are picking up traction. They're not, uh, like I said, you don't see them as being commonplace, but families are becoming increasingly interested in them. Mm. Uh, whether they have legal implications or not would depend on how rigid or how enforceable the family wants to make them. Yeah. In some situations, as I mentioned, families prefer enforceable structures because yeah. they want to avoid disputes taking place at some point in the future. Mm. Um, so in that case, what they will do is they will bind a trustee uh, with the family constitution and they will say that a trust should take all decisions in accordance with the constitution. Uh, but there are also uh, equally enough examples of families using the family constitution as a vision statement uh, and as a value statement of sorts. Uh, in which case it functions as less of an enforceable contract and just a sort of uh, guiding principle for family discussions in the future. Um, so whether they have legal implications or not would depend on how the families put them in place. Uh, and it would also accordingly influence who drafts them. So if you want to do this as a vision statement, for instance, you may be more happy to employ a business school academic uh, to help you with those conversations. Mm. Whereas if you want it to be more legally enforceable, you would more likely employ a lawyer. Mm. Um, having said this, I should emphasize that the way the constitution process works in India, and as I understand, this is also true of some other countries, mm. is that it would typically involve two stages. One is the psychological stage or the mediation stage where the family needs to sit together and come to a consensus on what they want to do. Uh, and that stage is more likely to be handled either by a non-lawyer or by a senior lawyer who has a relationship with the family. Right. Uh, whereas when they come to the second stage, which is the actual nuts and bolts of documenting what they have agreed to, that's where a lawyer or an accountant is more likely to come in. Right, right. Freddie, in your perspective um, from Indonesia, are, are we seeing more family constitutions being adopted? Um, and if they are, how would, would they have any legal implications under Indonesian law if, if there was ever a family dispute or a shareholder dispute? And then typically who are preparing these documents, business academics or lawyers and professionals? Okay, thank you. Uh, I don't think the family charter or constitution popular in Indonesia. We normally just uh, have a serious agreement or if, if among the family member that uh, to govern uh, object more than just a company, so maybe a group or something, that's uh, not uh, not so popular or not so common to have this uh, type of document actually. So uh, normally 
the the way of uh, thinking of the second generation will decide on how to distribute and how to run the the group. Right. Right. Uh, so that's uh, for number one and number two. If uh, I think on number three, if there is, I I believe normally, uh, of course, uh, lawyers or maybe the the notary will will help to to contemplate. But uh, I don't think. Uh, popular at this moment. Right, right, okay, okay. All right, now, I'm just transitioning. Um, international structuring, and here it's very, very sort of brief questions. Is it possible to structure succession to a family business using an offshore entity or arrangement? And what are the main considerations if this is possible? So I'd ask you to, to lead us off. Um, is it possible for the international financial centers such as Singapore, to, to get involved in a domestic Indian succession plan or a domestic Indian business? So, Zach, here it would depend on uh, the Indian exchange control regulations, which, uh, which govern quite significantly the manner in which the ownership of Indian businesses can be transferred to an offshore entity or uh, the ownership of offshore assets can be acquired by Indian residents. Uh, so as I understand what you're talking about when you're talking about structuring succession using an offshore entity arrangement, have ownership of Indian business transferred to the Singapore vehicle. Uh, and as for the exchange control regulations, there would be a fair number of limitations in terms of how that could be done. Uh, the least of which would not be that, uh, you know, if a resident transfers to a non-resident, there is a requirement that happen at a minimum of the fair market value of the Indian share. Uh, and so in terms of cash flow, it ends up being quite, uh, you know, quite a large amount that should come is that uh, the exchange regulations upon what is called a round tripping structure, where an Indian resident holds interest in a Singapore entity, for instance, which in turn holds interest in an Indian business. Uh, and so I think that combination of regulations would make it difficult to uh, use an offshore entity solely for the purposes of succession planning. Uh, having said this, if it's a globally resident family which has uh, you know, family members across the world and there is already some ownership held through this offshore vehicle, then of course it's absolutely an option and it would be considered. Right, and in terms of the, the last comment on the internationally held, if we have uh, a sort of Indian um, headquarters, but we've got uh, global subsidiaries, is it possible for those subsidiaries to be structured, subject of course to where they're located, without there being a necessarily uh, a, a big Indian sort of impact on that? Is that is that what you're saying? There may be challenges with that as well. Uh, so although an Indian company can set up subsidiaries in other countries, if you want these subsidiaries to be held through an offshore trust structure, uh, what you would essentially need to do is have the Indian entity settle an offshore trust. Uh, and I think there could be regulatory challenges with that, uh, partly because the Indian, the Reserve Bank of India uh, does not have crystallized positions on the treatment of Indian trusts or offshore trusts. So we would need to look at those structures fairly carefully to be able to figure out if it's workable or not. Right. Uh, and in most situations, you should assume that there would be challenges with it. Right, understood. Okay. 
So Freddie, from your perspective, um, we're looking at international structures holding uh, what is otherwise a domestic Indonesian business. Um, how easy is that to achieve with the, the, the regulatory environment? I know you have negative lists, so how easy is it to create PMAs and, and do that in Indonesia? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think as uh, most of the Indonesian business uh, would focus on uh, Indonesian market. Uh, uh, so an Indonesian market and Indonesian business subject to the negative list as you mentioned. So uh, the international structuring, although it is possible, although it is uh, doable, but uh, not really popular because of the, the negative list consideration. Yeah. Uh, not only about the restriction, but also the many requirements to maintain the the foreign uh, ownership investment here in Indonesia. So uh, the answer is possible, of course, but uh, not popular. Not popular, right? Okay. We're moving on to the domestic um, sort of family office environment. Is there demand for domestic family offices in your, in your relevant jurisdictions and which is more prevalent? And here I'll just set out the multifamily office, investment offices and single family office. And I'll just explain what, what I mean by these terms. So a multifamily office is uh, effectively external asset managers who are involved in uh, reinvesting or investing uh, um, sort of clients money. So it's a professional outfit that's been put together for commercial purposes that may have a number of different client families that they reinvest for. And this is typically what we would call a multifamily office. There's other ones where it literally means families coming together, but that's not the context in which I mean that. Investment offices is not really, it's a, it's a, a, a way in which an entrepreneur or a, a relatively young uh, sort of a high net worth individual will reinvest his own funds. And there's no intention of it being cross-generational at this point, it's probably too early. So that's what typically an investment office is. And then a single family office really means family, and that means multi-generational, and that means collective wealth from different family branches. So uh, looking at it from a domestic standpoint, is there actual demand for domestic family offices um, in, in your jurisdiction? And I think Tria, for you, if you can again take us forward with this. Sure. So I think there is a mix of all three and this has particularly become more popular, like I said, after the insolvency and bankruptcy code, which is a creditor favorable legislation that has compelled families to think about their personal investments in a more uh, systematic manner. So multifamily offices are absolutely something that families are looking at uh, and you do have a couple of uh, fairly successful multi of multifamily offices in India. Mm. Investment offices tend to be more common amongst the younger entrepreneurs. So you see them occasionally with the technology entrepreneurs, for instance. Mm. Uh, and the larger families are also looking at single family office uh, structures, although that tends to be more in relation to, uh, so they would, they would be less likely to focus only on the domestic side, and they would also look at international investments. Right, right. And so, Freddie, from your perspective, uh, looking at Indonesian families, is there a demand for domestic family offices in Indonesia? I think the, the demand are there, although maybe they they not really aware that they need the domestic family office uh, because they manage uh, 
by themselves, but I think the function of the family office in this case is domestic, may give a bit to, to the family, uh, can uh, coordinate at least uh, the focus of the investment and the, and the roadmap of the investment. So, Although maybe not 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 saying that the uh, this is the statistic or the calculation of the demand, but uh, understand that they they they, they start to uh, professionally manage the the investment and assets. So I think the domestic family office present uh, uh, will will give uh, uh, advantage to them. Right, and are you seeing many family offices in in uh, in Indonesia in the sense of um, sort of professional external asset managers managing family wealth in Indonesia. Is that a growth area? I think there's, uh, um, this multi-family investment office or single family office, I believe that the single family office would be the the, the front runner, uh, the more prevalent. Uh, right. So just uh, transition there and uh, in terms of business families, um, Obviously, there comes a point in time where business families will begin to look at international, their international wealth. And what we've seen that sort of over recent years is the internationalization of family offices and the, uh, the, the use of uh, financial centers in, in helping families to, to manage their concentrated wealth. And one particular obvious success story in this area is the single core, single family office. And this has been uh, a, a recent sort of innovation that has um, grown uh, quite rapidly over the years in, in terms of use. And I think at this point, I would, I would invite Spencer to, from the Monetary Authority of Singapore to uh, make a few remarks about the um, single family uh, office in Singapore. Um, it's you know, sort of uh, where it, uh, the originating idea and how it's been uh, developed over the years and, and where it's going, uh, going forward. So Spencer, if I could just uh, hand over to you for a few comments on the, uh, the the international family office and particularly the Singapore single family office. Right. Uh, thanks very much, Zach. Uh, and also uh, thanks to uh, Shreya and Freddie for your very uh, insightful thing. Um, as I've mentioned earlier, you know, it's uh, this is uh, very educational for me as well in terms of uh, uh, my role in looking at the development of um, family businesses as well as uh, family offices. So I think um, the, the point about international family offices actually extends very nicely uh, from the earlier conversation on uh, governance, succession planning, uh, as well as how they manage their assets. Um, and in, in the past few years, I think Singapore has um, you know, been a key center for uh, international uh, family offices because we see uh, family offices that are coming from uh, different parts of the world. Uh, including those uh, from uh, India as well as uh, Indonesia. Uh, and I think some of the reasons why uh, families uh, would uh, choose to set up an international family office, um, largely I think it's, it's because, you know, um, families are becoming very uh, cosmopolitan in nature. Uh, the, the family business uh, may be in in, in India or Indonesia, but uh, the children are being uh, educated uh, outside of uh, their home countries. Uh, and also subsequent to that, uh, they may actually uh, decide to uh, either uh, you know, seek employment or to settle down uh, in 
um, in another part of the world. Uh, and and that, that creates a very uh, complex situation for the family uh, in terms of managing its wealth. You know, do they uh, manage it domestically? If that's the case, then, you know, when it comes to uh, transferring uh, to the next generation, how should they go about it? Um, and I think another, um, another reason why international family offices tend to be uh, attractive for families is that uh, I think earlier on, you know, we've talked about succession planning. How do you transfer the family business to the next generation? Uh, but I think there are also uh, uh, instances whereby uh, in the cases of a, a large family, not all uh, family members may wish to be uh, directly involved uh, in the family business. They may feel that there are other areas of pursuits that they are interested in or that, you know, the younger members of the family uh, need some time to be uh, inducted into the family business. And hence, this is where uh, uh, the family office uh, comes as a useful uh, entity or structure because um, the family members will still be involved in managing uh, the assets of the family uh, without being directly uh, involved in the, um, in, in the management of the business itself. And uh, the family office itself lends uh, well for um, other functions which the family uh, wishes to carry out. Uh, for example, I think a common area that we've seen, especially the, the more established families, is in terms of uh, carrying out their philanthropy uh, interests or, or even you know, to carry out functions that are uh, supportive of family governance, such as organizing you know, annual family board meetings, uh, you know, helping to set up the family constitution. Uh, this uh, family office uh, serves to be a very useful platform. Uh, and also, I think in terms of uh, uh, centralizing uh, the assets for management, uh, this is also very useful for families which have uh, assets uh, uh, all, over, all over the world. Uh, I think, uh, especially in light of uh, the, the CRS reporting implementation, um, in order to uh, optimize CRS reporting instead of having to report um, via multiple jurisdictions, uh, centralizing uh, their assets under a single uh, entity within a particular location actually simplifies uh, the process of uh, CRS reporting uh, for the family. So I think for, for all these uh, reasons that I've stated earlier, uh, uh, there, there are many benefits uh, of uh, international family office to um, family businesses, especially if uh, they are rather global in nature. The, the, the focus of the business extends uh, beyond the home country. And uh, this, in a way, is it, helpful for them because it, it builds up their uh, accumulation of uh, offshore assets. And that's where the role of an international family office uh, comes in useful. Uh, in this regard, uh, Singapore has been an attractive location uh, for attractive location for, for families which are looking to set up their international uh, family offices, uh, particularly in the ASEAN region, uh, because um, when families set up their uh, family office, they want it to be close uh, in terms of uh, geographical proximity. And also between Singapore and India, I think you know, the travel distance is not too uh, uh, significant not too obstructive. Uh, and I think uh, in terms of a uh, cultural uh, similarity because of the common uh, English spoken language, it's also a, a, a place whereby uh, Indian uh, business families are, are very comfortable in, in coming to. And hence for these reasons, uh, Singapore has been uh, very attractive in that sense. And on top of that, I think in terms of uh, 
Singapore's political and economic stability, the strong rule of law, all lends well to the protection of assets uh, which are being managed out of Singapore. Uh, and at the same time, uh, the ability to access uh, global investment opportunities, um, including you know, uh, uh, your, your top equities and, and bond, bond listings, while at the same time being able to access uh, private equity opportunities uh, right in Singapore's backyard. I think that has uh, proven to be a very uh, useful combination of factors uh, that has prompted many uh, families to set up the international family offices uh, in Singapore. And, and, and I think as a statistic to reflect this, uh, the number of family offices that we have seen in Singapore has actually grown by five times uh, in the period between 2017 to 2019. So this is actually a very uh, a strong growth story over here. And I think on top of that, uh, there are also uh, certain incentives uh, that um, the Singapore government has put in place. Um, there are some incentives which are uh, meant to provide certainty and, uh, and, and transparency of uh, taxes uh, for investments which are managed out of here. Uh, uh, those would, um, we would call this the 13X and the 13R uh, tax incentives. And essentially uh, what it means that for, for investments which are managed out of Singapore, uh, the families can be assured that um, you know, these investments, if they qualify uh, under our list of qualified investments, uh, will be tax exempted. Uh, and this will be for the perpetuity uh, of, of the fund which is being managed out of Singapore. So it provides a very good certainty to, um, to, to family offices managing their assets from Singapore. Uh, and I think for those, uh, for, for some of these uh, fam business families as well, um, now is also a time whereby they are looking at uh, where they want to establish uh, their residency um, uh, for, for the purpose of the future planning of the family bit in terms of uh, you know, children's education, uh, the fam member, family members' health care, uh, as well as their taking care of their investment needs. Uh, so that for some families, they are actually looking at uh, establishing their permanent residency in another location. Uh, and in this, in this regard, Singapore also has uh, um, some plans in place that can facilitate uh, the application for permanent residency. Again, uh, through the setup of a family office, if they were to meet uh, the requirements, uh, then uh, it will be a fast track uh, uh, approach to obtaining a permanent residency in Singapore. And I think the beauty of, of the incentives is that you know, they can be used uh, in conjunction with each other to create the ideal uh, kind of a setup uh, for, for the families. I think I'll just pause here uh, and, and, and see if there are any questions, uh, be it from our panelists or, or even amongst the, the participants. I've got questions from Freddie, from your perspective, um, Singapore single family office. Uh, we're obviously out of the, uh, the sort of amnesty holdover period. So are we seeing a lot of assets moving from uh, Indonesia across back to Singapore to, to structure under these family offices? Uh, what, have you, what have you seen uh, sort of personally on this front? Okay, so maybe uh, where, when you uh, mentioned about the tax amnesty, maybe in, the, in, in 2016, there were some uh, return of offshore assets back to Indonesia, but not much. Mostly stay, still stay offshore, mostly. Uh, so uh, maybe to make a Singapore family office, uh, there will 
there will be some uh, assets uh, put offshore. That's a uh, quite common, but this is normally for financial assets or uh, maybe the property, meaning that uh, the family would like to have the real property offshore. Yeah. But on the active business, uh, like I mentioned earlier, that uh, maybe uh, the negative list may be the main concern. The other is uh, would be the CFC rules for the tax, meaning that uh, we'll we'll have a, like a, maybe double tax, but cannot be remedied by tax treaty because CFC is the lo pure local issue. Right, right, right. But we you've not seen a uh, a sort of movement of assets that had come back as part of the amnesty being effectively sent out again for the purpose of reinvestment through Singapore, particularly. You've not seen that as a trend. Yeah, at least uh, compared to the whole nation, uh, looks uh, not so significant. Right. So if it's going on, it's going on with the wealth that was effectively in Singapore in any event. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think for today's purposes, um, I would just like to sort of obviously thank uh, Spencer and Freddie and obviously Shreya for uh, spending time with us and also for all of the attendees for um, you know, sort of breaking their, their routine and, and, and spending time. And I hope it's been a useful session. Uh, as I said, next week uh, we will have the uh, Philippines and Japan session being aired at the same time on Wednesday. So I think uh, for the moment, I think we will, we will close the session here today. Thanks very much for tuning in and listening.